Hello everyone and welcome to the March 27th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skern & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A legal battle has pitted a major national insurer and its pharmacy benefit manager against each other in dueling legal actions that could include tens of thousands of claimants. Anthem is one of the nation's largest health insurers with more than 38 million members. Express Scripts handled more than 175 million claims for Anthem in 2015 alone. The legal saga started when Anthem sued Express Scripts last March, accusing it of excessive pricing and operational failures. It also sought the right to terminate its 10-year contract with Express Scripts, which began in 2009. Express Scripts had been contracted as Anthem's exclusive provider of pharmacy benefits management services for Anthem-administered health insurance plans for a 10-year period. Part of the agreement was a periodic pricing review to ensure that Anthem was receiving competitive benchmark pricing for drugs. However, when Anthem engaged a private consultant to conduct a market analysis, Anthem discovered that Express Scripts did not provide competitive benchmark pricing as it had promised. The analysis claimed that the Express Script current pricing to Anthem exceeded competitive benchmark pricing by more than $3 billion annually and $13 billion over the remaining term of the 10-year agreement. This was the basis of the March Anthem versus Express Scripts lawsuit. In its counterclaims against Anthem, Express Scripts said the insurer rejected several proposals to renegotiate prices. Two months later, two health plan participants sued both companies under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, known as ERISA, challenging Express Scripts' alleged overbilling. Express Scripts and Anthem are accused by the participants in a proposed class action of breaching their ERISA fiduciary duties by entering into the prescription drug agreement that caused plan participants to overpay for benefits. This action seeks to recover losses suffered by the plaintiffs who overpaid and continue to overpay for the portions of the costs of prescription drugs they are responsible for paying as planned participants. Both Anthem and Express Scripts deny the allegations made against them by the planned participants and intend to fight it out in court with them. The court has not yet decided if the suit will have class action status. Recently, the federal judge has dismissed two of the six counterclaims that Express Scripts raised in Anthem's $15 billion lawsuit. Express Scripts has contracts with insurers and other administrators of workers' compensation benefits in California. It is unclear if any of Anthem's allegations apply to any of the California workers' compensation pharmacy benefit contracts. Rite Aid Corporation has paid over $800,000 in civil penalties to the United States to settle claims stemming from alleged violations of the Controlled Substances Act. 
Rite Aid paid the civil settlement as part of an agreement reached to resolve allegations that certain Rite Aid pharmacies in Los Angeles dispense controlled substances using a medical practitioner's incorrect or invalid DEA registration number. The government alleged that the incorrect or invalid registration numbers were used at least 1,298 times as a result of Rite Aid's failure to adequately maintain its internal database. The settlement also resolves allegations that Rite Aid pharmacies dispensed on at least 63 occasions prescriptions for controlled substances written by a practitioner whose DEA registration number had been revoked by the DEA for cause. In 1970, the United States Congress passed the Controlled Substances Act, which created a closed system of distribution for controlled substances. The CSA established a regulatory framework to control every facet of the handling of the substances from their manufacture to their consumption. This act became law against the backdrop of increasing diversion and abuse of legitimate controlled substances. Accurate record keeping at retail pharmacies helps ensure that authorities can keep track of how many controlled substances a pharmacy should have and does have on hand. In entering into and paying the settlement, Rite Aid did not admit liability. Prior to entering into the agreement, Rite Aid implemented a DEA registration validation program designed to verify DEA registration numbers for medical professionals. This case was investigated by the Drug Enforcement Administration's Office of Diversion Control, Los Angeles Field Division. This January, the city of Everett in Washington filed a first-of-its-kind lawsuit against Purdue Pharma. The city claims the drug maker supplied OxyContin to obviously suspicious physicians and pharmacies, ultimately failing to prevent the illegal diversion of OxyContin into the black market. Other suits against the company by states and municipalities have accused Purdue Pharma of deceptive marketing, allegedly playing up OxyContin's effectiveness while playing down its addictiveness. But Everett's lawsuit is the first to claim the company knew its drugs were being diverted and did nothing to stop it. In particular, the complaint outlines a drug ring that began with a sham clinic in Los Angeles and ended with Kingpin running OxyContin on the streets of Everett. The unraveling was detailed in a Los Angeles Times investigation that triggered the idea for Everett's lawsuit. The Los Angeles pill mill was ultimately shut down and the cadre of physicians, pharmacists, and dealers that kept it churning were prosecuted. But now, the city of Everett, Washington, the jail is overflowing with addicts, the detox facility is set to double in size, and the city spends a fortune clearing its streets and parks of needles and tiny plastic bags. City officials say those are the hallmarks of a heroin epidemic that began as a crisis dating back to the late 2000s that involved opioid prescription painkillers. Nearly a decade after the opioid onslaught, the city of Everett is still struggling with the cost. 
And now the city wants the company that manufactured OxyContin to pay the bill. Key to the complaint are internal Purdue emails from an exchange between Purdue's compliance director and a sales manager who had become suspicious of the number of OxyContin prescriptions traced back to the Los Angeles clinic. After paying the clinic a visit, the sales manager wrote that there was a line out the door with people who looked like gang members. The sales manager said in the email that he felt very certain the clinic was an organized drug ring, but, nothing, but did nothing about it and did not report anything to authorities. Purdue Pharma disputes the allegations in the lawsuit. The company said the city paints a flawed and inaccurate portrayal of events that led to the crisis in Everett. The first OxyContin lawsuit to successfully procure a settlement came in 2007. The federal OxyContin lawsuit alleged that the company had fraudulently encouraged overprescription of the drug. This OxyContin lawsuit distributed $130 million to victims of OxyContin addiction. But private OxyContin lawsuits concerning side effects have not been widely successful. However, a large number of OxyContin lawsuits were settled out of court. Santa Clara and Orange Counties jointly filed a case against Purdue in 2015. They alleged that Purdue Pharma, Cephalon, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, Endo Health Solutions, and activists violated California's false advertising and unfair competition laws and created a public nuisance. The case was placed on hold by court order in 2015, pending the outcome of an FDA investigation that were underway at the time. Chicago sued Purdue Pharma and other drug makers in 2014, saying they misled doctors and the public about the addictive nature of opiates and pushed prescriptions despite known dangers of addiction. A defense request for a stay order pending FDA investigations similar to the one in the Orange County case was denied in September 2016, and the Chicago case is still active. The third amended complaint filed by Chicago last October contains 341 pages of specific allegations against the defendant drug makers, not counting exhibits. And it reads like an organized crime fiction novel laced with intrigue. The information in this document would certainly steer a competent subrogation lawyer in the right direction to find evidence to make a case. The outcome of these pending cases, and certainly more to follow, will weigh heavily on the answer to the question about the surrogation potential against opiate drug makers for recovery of the costs of some of our most costly and protracted workers' compensation injury claims. And now our crime report. It was touted as a mega-bust and the successful end to a five-year investigation aimed at dismantling one of the largest insurance fraud schemes in California history. Back in 2015, more than a dozen people associated with Frontline Medical Associates were accused of taking part in a $150 million scam that involved unnecessary surgeries 
<clears throat> by non-surgeons, doling out kickbacks for illegal patient referrals, and fraudulently billing insurance companies. But over the 18 months that followed, a judge dismissed most of the 132 counts laid out in the two indictments. The most serious charges for aggravated mayhem carrying a potential life sentence were dropped for a lack of evidence. Now prosecutors are taking a second stab at the case after acknowledging flaws in how they presented it to a grand jury. At the prosecutor's request, the Los Angeles Superior Court judge threw out pending charges in the two indictments against 13 defendants last week, except for two suspects who were fugitives. Prosecutors immediately refiled new charges against a dozen people in separate criminal complaints listing 194 criminal counts. Prosecutors allege that Dr. Minure Ueda, the certified orthopedic surgeon patients believed would conduct procedures, instead let a physician's assistant perform surgeries. The scheme left nearly two dozen patients with lasting scars. Ueda is the accused ringleader who prosecutors initially said had been captured in Germany, but he remains at large. They believe he is living in Lebanon. Defense attorneys called the move to drop and then refile charges a transparent stunt to dodge an evidentiary hearing scheduled a week later. They claim that prosecutors and investigators improperly reviewed thousands of records, including communications between defendants and their attorneys, protected by the attorney-client privilege. More than 50 prosecutors and district attorney investigators had been subpoenaed to testify in the now-canceled hearing. Defense attorneys alleged that some documents that prosecutors and others reviewed were used to bolster the criminal case. In one example, an investigator developed leads based on correspondence between Dr. Ueda and one of his attorneys, leading to an undercover operation a year later. The investigator's testimony before a grand jury led to three of the original counts. Defense attorneys say the violation of the attorney-client privilege could justify throwing county prosecutors off the case. It is unclear now that the case has been dismissed and refiled if and when the evidentiary hearing will move forward and in front of which judge. But before dismissing the case, the judge reminded prosecutors that all these issues are still going to be there in the newly filed case. A Maine woman has filed suit in federal court against a California security services firm saying the company retaliated against her when she complained about allegedly illegal acts being committed by one of its executives, Usama Carweya. Carweya was convicted in Los Angeles a few years ago for insurance fraud and other expenses committed at a security service company he co-owned at the time here in California. In 2012, he was found guilty of setting up a shell company to hide the true number of his employees as a way to avoid paying higher workers' compensation premiums. The trial court sentenced 
Karawia to five years in state prison, but suspended execution of that sentence and placed him on probation for five years on the condition that he served 240 days in custody, which could be served by electronic monitoring. Now, five years later, Pamela Treadwell alleges that her problems began when her current employer, Vescom, hired Karawia to help with management of their firm. Vescom is part of a worldwide sourcing group that owns several security firms and says it is one of the largest privately owned security firms in the country. Vescom had an office in Maine that has since been closed and the company is now based back here in California. According to Treadwell's 2017 lawsuit, Karawia allegedly again committed insurance fraud while at Vescom by getting a policy that covered employees at a lower rate by using Vescom's claims history rather than the higher claims rate of the other subsidiary companies. She told the company's owners that Karawia was getting kickbacks from the insurer and that having him involved in the company ran afoul of state licensing regulations that bars felons from having management positions in a security firm. The lawsuit claims the top management in the company retaliated against her for whistleblowing, so she resigned and filed a federal lawsuit against the company and the California convicted felon. And in regulatory news, a CWCI analysis of the IMR process used to resolve medical disputes finds that in 2016, IMR physicians once again upheld about 90% of UR physicians' modifications or denials of treatment. Yet IMR volume continued to grow, climbing 6.5% last year. The CWCI analysis is based on a review of data from nearly a half million IMR decision letters issued in the last three years. Lawmakers who included IMR in the 2012 workers' comp reforms expected the process would reduce workers' compensation treatment disputes once the community came to understand which services would be approved. But instead, IMR volume is at a record high. As the DWC reports, there were over 10,000 more cases in 2016 than in the prior year. IMR physicians upheld the UR doctor 91.2% of the time in 2016, which was up from an 88.4% uphold rate in 2015 and matched the rate in 2014. The mix of services reviewed by IMR physicians in 2016 showed little change from the two prior years. Prescription drug requests again accounted for nearly half of all IMRs. Requests for compounded drugs representing a declining share of the 2016 prescription drug IMRs as they fell from 8 to 6.2% last year. Requests for physical therapy, injections, and durable medical equipment together represented around 24% of the 2016 IMRs, while no other medical service category accounted for more than 5% of the disputed requests. As in the prior two years, the analysis found that most of the disputed medical services that went through IMR in 2016 were requested by a small number of physicians. 
the top 10% of physicians named in the 2016 IMR decision letters accounted for 85% of the disputed service requests. Significant geographic variation was again evident. More than 32% of the IMR decision letters were addressed to Los Angeles County recipients, even though the region only accounted for about 24% of all workers' compensation medical services in the state. IMR volume also was disproportionately high in the Bay Area, while less populated regions of the state had a disproportionately small share of the IMRs, as did the Inland Empire, Orange County, and San Diego. An amendment that extends the deadline to file for the Return to Work Supplement Program has been approved effective March 20, 2017. The regulation amendment extends a deadline to file for these benefits for certain individuals who may not have received notice of their eligibility to apply for the Return to Work Supplemental Program benefit. The amended regulations can be found on the DIR website. And in medical news, the biggest marijuana market for now is the United States, with estimates that it will surpass $20 billion by 2020. And the workers' compensation industry is carefully watching the evolving trend, which some say will soon reach its doorstep. The momentum is increasing, with billions of dollars now pushing the momentum. But importing cannabis to the United States is illegal under federal law. The only way to get around the ban is to receive approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Britain's GW Pharmaceuticals, Expidiolex, an experimental cannabis-based drug to treat epilepsy, could be the first to get the green light from the FDA. Growing acceptance of medical marijuana creates opportunities in countries that have legalized medical marijuana but have not developed the infrastructure. Canada exports medical cannabis to Australia, Croatia, and Chile. And now Israel, a leader in marijuana research and health technology, is attracting international investment as it tries to position itself as a cutting-edge exporter of medical-grade cannabis. The Israeli government is set to allow the local industry to start exporting and projects annual revenues in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Medical cannabis is a relatively new field with no universal clinical standard. Israel aims to fill the void by combining its expertise in agriculture, technology, and cannabis-based medicine, said the head of the Israel Health Ministry's medical cannabis unit. The strategy is to create medical-grade cannabis with quality and efficacy ensured along with the entire supply chain from cultivation to manufacture and distribution. In contrast to the United States, which is currently the biggest legal marijuana market, authorities in Israel are liberal in their support of research and development. Licensed marijuana growers work with scientific institutions and clinical trials toward the development of cannabis strains that treat a variety of illnesses and disorders. There are about 120 studies ongoing in Israel, including clinical trials looking at the effects of cannabis on autism, epilepsy, 
psoriasis, and tinnitus. The health industry wants to share its acquired knowledge and train doctors from abroad. Talks are underway with Australia, Germany, Brazil, and others. And the government gave the go-ahead in February to legislation that would allow export from Israel. More than 500 Israeli companies have applied for licenses to grow, manufacture, and export cannabis products. In the past year, U.S. and other firms have invested about $100 million to license Israeli medical patents. Investment is expected to grow tenfold and reach $1 billion over the next two years. Israel's largest grower has partnered with U.S. companies to cultivate marijuana in four U.S. states, and pending government approval, it hopes to export to Europe and South America. A new CWCI study on the use of spinal fusion surgeries in California workers' compensation finds that in 60% of all spinal fusion cases, the initial report of injury was for a sprain or strain, and a majority of the fusions occurred within two years of the injury. And as the claims aged, more than 20% involved at least one subsequent fusion surgery. The analysis is based on data from more than 18,000 claims in which one or more spinal fusions were performed. Men accounted for more than 64% of the spinal fusion claims in each of the 15 years studied. And average amounts paid were higher for males than females, 15.5% more for temporary disability, 27% more for permanent disability, and 16% more for medical care. Lumbar fusions accounted for nearly half of the workers' compensation spinal fusions. Mental health disorders were the leading comorbidity in 37% of spinal fusion cases, while 29.9% involved circulatory problems and 17.1% listed substance abuse as a comorbid condition. And in other news, a new automated online system from Chubb will help independent agents quote and issue a comprehensive workers' compensation policy for small businesses. Chubb's workers' compensation policy for small business owners is designed to meet the needs of a wide range of industries. It provides coverage for small businesses with as few as one employee, up to businesses with revenues of $10 million. There are versatile coverage options, including waiver of subrogation and various employer liability limits. There is an easy 24-7 automated system access with the ability to generate a quote and issue a policy in just minutes. Chubb is the world's largest publicly traded property and casualty insurance company with operations in 54 countries. Chubb maintains executive offices in Zurich, New York, London, and other locations, and employs approximately 31,000 people worldwide. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or an Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, 
And please drop by again next week for more news.